and welcome to the Point of Care Ultrasound Certification Academy podcast, where we focus on POCUS. Here, we will discuss all things related to Point of Care Ultrasound, the practice, the trends, and its impact on healthcare. Our program will engage thought leaders who are defining global patient care with the stethoscope of the future. Welcome all to the podcast, Focus on Pocus, live from Philadelphia, where it's always sunny and actually blustery and windy today. I'm really excited today, live in the studio. Today we have Dr. Thomas Kelly here live at Widget Studios and Media PA, a former colleague of mine. We work together, so we're pretty excited about that. Dr. Thomas Kelly, CRNA, is an advanced practice nurse who holds certification as a nurse anesthesiologist and holds a doctorate in nursing practice. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania Diploma School of Nursing in 1978 and has pursued his education to the highest level, serving as Assistant Professor of Nurse Anesthesia Science and Assistant Director of Nurse Anesthesia, Master's Level Program at Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Kelly now serves as a senior member of the Neuroscience Intervention Team, which has members on call 24 hours a day, ready to intervene in acute neurologic stroke attacks at times able to markedly reduce the resultant brain injury caused by clots. Tom, Dr. Kelly, how are you today? Good to see you. Good morning, James. Good to see you. Did I uh, pronounce uh, anesthetist correctly? That's a tough one. Anesthetist is a hard one. Can you give me a primer on that? We call ourselves Certified Registered Nurse Anesthetist. I think the best way to to, uh, abbreviate it is CRNA. CRNA, okay. Another acronym for me to remember. That's good. Okay. So as you said, we're advanced practice nurses. There's 53,000 of us in America participating over in 100 million anesthetics annually. And um, we do use point-of-care ultrasound in our practice. In in my application, we use it for... uh, Placing necklines, looking at uh, the IJ versus the carotid, and the safety is greatly improved. And um, also for peripheral access of the radial artery sticks, as we call them, Mm. also gives us the the roadmap right into the artery. Yeah, you guys are doing great things there, down there at... uh What is the, the facility you're at now? I know you've done a lot of things. It's been a long time since we worked together. Now, what... I want to kind of go back here for nostalgia's sake. What was the class we did? That was a long day you and I did at Thomas Jefferson Simulation Center. Well, actually, we did a few of them. We uh, did a... Um, I think I tried to block it out of my mind. Central access <laughs> and the um, internal jugular access workshop with ultrasound using the um, advanced mannequins. Mm-hmm. And... Um, through that, you know, we were both instructors in that, and uh, we also had some ancillary instructors, some of our new physician anesthesiologists and one of the residents, and we were teaching our students the uh, safest access via the right side of the neck into the internal jugular for central access for triple lumens, and um, we had a great experience looking at the pictures. Um, the students were very confident in getting t- to the live patient, ha- having done at least five successful sticks. Yeah. And uh, avoiding the artery, of course, avoiding the, the carotid, of course. Yeah, we don't want that. No. And, they're, of course, they're very in close proximity. So we can we can access the jugular and safely thread the catheter in there. And we can actually, uh, using the various 
uh, probe angles, we can see the depth and the length of the needle, and uh, you know, as, which is your expertise, and uh, because you have you've taught us how to do that. I remember we had a lot of fun with the nerve block. We had um, another um, ancillary staff come in. Those were great days, good good days. But I want to uh, ask you something just real quickly here. I know we're all regional here, and since I messed up uh, nurse anesthetist really bad, is it jugular or jugular? Well, uh, my um, undergraduate <laughs> anatomy professor, Dr. Schaefer, was was Canadian, and he always said things differently, and I, <laughs> I choose to use his pronunciations, and that's going back to 1970-whatever. Uh, but uh, those Canadians, they talk funny. Yeah, but, listen, and they're polite. But, uh, you know, I just I have to rib you because we had so much fun in the class, uh, and the students really loved it. We got high marks, I remember. I'm tooting our own horn for us, but those mm -hmm. were really good times, sunny days. Good times. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of that, we did also did the um, – peripheral nerve block workshop, mm -hmm. and uh, we had a physician from uh, Shriners Hospital uh, assist us with that, the um, young lady, uh, and we did uh, lower extremity blocks and upper extremity blocks, and nerve blocks, of course, are not in my purview in this practice because um, every every patient is critical care and there's no, uh, there's no blocking for the brain which is we do primarily neuroanesthesia from a checkup from the neck up. So it's brain, eye, and ear, and uh, ENT surgery is what we focus on at Will's Eye slash Jefferson Hospital for Neuroscience. And you're functioning quite well after this long shift you went. How long were you on a shift before you came in the studio this morning? Well, I was on, on 24 hours. We have a suite, and I had some rest. We had two uh, emergencies in the in the middle of the night, which were not a lot of uh, were, were not arduous. Um, and we admitted them, and off we go. And then I got here at eight o'clock this morning, and we're we're ready to go. It's amazing. And how many Wawa coffees did you have? I only had one Wawa coffee. Only one. Okay, I just want to make sure that. So the, I'm thinking about nurse anesthesia profession in general and um, thinking about how the profession functions. You uh, shed some light on that, Dr. Kelly. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a nurse anesthetist with a doctorate. And um, as of 2025, all the uh, graduates from nurse anesthesia programs will be doctorally prepared. And um, it wasn't so long ago that we became – uh, masters as an entry to practice uh, in in my time in the late 80s, and um, we function in every site where anesthesia is provided, um, from obstetrics to the open heart area, and in my specialty, the neuroscience arena. Uh, we function in the in the critical care area, where every patient is critical, as in our small 75 bed hospital, and also in the surgery center, where we do surgery for. Uh, elective procedures, cosmetics, oral surgery, uh, ENT, pediatrics, you name it. You know, your career is across uh, the three big spheres, I think you, clinical, industry, academic. So, and since you're an advanced practice nurse, uh, you've contributed to these different spheres of influence and in, um, career fields. Can you share what type of diverse areas are possible with CRNA? Well, going back as an RN, and I graduated in 1978 and um, functioned in uh, emergency and critical care and pediatrics mm -hmm. for some years. And then uh, at the time, 
nurses were not able to make uh, a living that would sustain a family. So I, I went to uh, industry and I worked for General Electric and uh, went into the cath lab division as a nurse. It was a great opportunity to be in industry. The income was significant. Um, mm. It took me into the operating room to see what anesthesia did and that's where I became enthralled with anesthesia and, and I set my sights on that. And um, then I pursued my master's degree with that and um, went into academia after about a dozen years and um, was involved with academia and I was uh, working in the simulation area and I was coordinator of the simulation center and that's how we got to do our ultrasound workshops together and um, teaching clinically and doing some research and uh, also maintaining my clinical certification uh, working 40 hours a month at least and um, yeah you were busy I remember those days you were like uh, very busy yeah, it was so. It was um, academia's. Uh, it's not for the lighthearted. You you do have to spend many hours to get your your content correct and yes, practice and you know record your lectures and listen and make sure everything is proper. Make sure your documentation is proper, and um, and then move on to the presentation and then testing and it's an endless cycle. When they started the new program for stroke coverage, uh, the chief asked if I was interested, and I was ready for a change, and I, I did jump over uh, just across the street to uh, be on the neuroscience team. And uh, it's been mm -hmm. a great transition. So it's been five years now, and um, we have a great crew. There's only 17 of us or so, and uh, every fifth night I'm 24 hours. And uh, then I do two eight-hour days. It's like a firehouse schedule. And it works yeah. for me. Yeah. The yeah. irregularity works for me. I like that. Yeah, that keeps you on your toes, you know. <clears throat> I know you're a man of many hobbies and stuff, so what was the madness that made you want to uh, do the uh, fencing? <laughs> you mean fencing as in selling TVs or fencing as <laughs> when I was with my saber and I fell and broke my arm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's that pretty one. interesting. You were telling me that story before we went on the air here. Well, and trying to keep keep in shape, you know, and trying to stay active and going to classes every night or going to the gym. And, you know, it's not – it doesn't take long for somebody to work in that I'm working out, like, into a conversation. Like, they just do it all the time. And I wasn't able to do that. Mm -hmm. So I started taking some fencing classes and um, just getting more advanced in the drills uh, – my my feet got tied up with one of my classmates, and I fell and broke my arm. Ouch! And um, yeah. mm. that was the end of my fencing career. And, and then you were limping into the studio today. What happened with that? At the well, other workout? I, again, I was hey, I was working out, <laughs> and uh, I'll give you that. Strained my uh, Achilles tendon on the left side, and uh, I felt something go ping. And um, but yeah. I think it's getting better. It's been about three days now, so uh, whirlpool on ice and what have you. But you do have to be careful because anesthesia is, is pretty physical. Yeah. Like moving patients. Patients are getting bigger. Um, uh, we, we drive the beds. We position them. Uh, neurosurgery of the spine. You know, the patient is, uh, the airway is secured, intubation, what have you. All the lines are placed. Then we turn the patient prone where they're on their face and tummy. And then all that is positioned. Some patients are three or 400 pounds and, it's just um, pretty physical, and you have to stay in shape to uh, do anesthesia. So, um, 
So how are nurse anesthetists in the uh, neuroanesthesia arena utilizing ultrasound? You, you kind of uh, touched on that lightly. So they're doing uh, internal uh, jugular you know, placement, IJs and uh, nerve blocks, swans, things of that nature. Are they beginning to uh, say a, a patient goes bad, uh, jump out and do some diagnostic uh, ultrasound? Well, actually, uh, we don't do that, but right. I know the nurse practitioners in the uh, neuro uh, ICUs are, are using, are very quick to grab the ultrasound. Mm -hmm. um, primarily, um, we don't do nerve blocks, and we neurosurgery patients don't lend themselves to having necklines because they're operating on the head and spine, like cervical spine. Mm -hmm. So uh, generally speaking, it's, it's for uh, peripheral access to the artery or for venous access is, is what we do. And um, when we do stroke interventions, the uh, neurosurgery uh, fellows and surgeons will use it, the ultrasound to guide their radial access and their femoral access. So it's direct vision access, so they mm -hmm. don't basically hunt and peck and, and poke at the artery and risk hematoma. And um, the training starts from day one. When the fellows come in, they learn how to use the ultrasound for identification. They're now, just as the cardiologists are doing, intervening in the radial artery uh, as opposed to the femoral artery, much less issues with hematoma. The patient can sit up following um, the procedure, which is a good idea in case they have intracranial pressure issues. And you can't sit up if you have a femoral site and you have a, um, you know, a plug in there right. because the, the issues with hematoma and um, retroperitoneal bleed exist. Right, so no femoral type. That's better access, obviously. Right, they're somewhat limited in the size of things that they can deploy in the radial mm -hmm. artery. And um, but that said, uh, the safety outweighs uh, the disadvantages. Hmm. So there's a. I mean, that's a very high tech place where, that you're working in daily. And uh, so I was just thinking earlier we were talking about uh, artificial intelligence and you know, the coming impacts on all professions of the world. Um, so how has, uh, technology impacted, you know, your nurse anesthesia practice? Well, in the high tech world of neuroanesthesia, when we're doing minimally invasive procedures, we're, we're far away from the patient. Um, and the patient may or not ha have a secured airway. In other words, an intubated patient who is sedated and using uh, muscle relaxant or paralytic to keep them from moving under all the cameras. We tell the patient for the simple term, all the x-ray equipment that's capturing these images with contrast dye injected. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes the patient with stroke, we, we don't use um, very much anesthesia. The airway is natural. They might have a cannula on and they might have a very small amount of sedation because surgery wants to be able to do the neuro assessment and see if they've improved, if they've gone in and they've done the mechanical um, thrombolysis where they'll retrieve the clot and um, try to basically interrupt the stroke. Uh, so the technology is, um, is really advanced quickly and we're, um, we're behind a lot of leaded glass. We wear lead, mm -hmm. leaded eyeglasses. Some people wear leaded hats. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a potentially dangerous area when you're down in all that x-ray, so we're probably not down there more than two days a week, so we're exposed to less. Right. 
for the cumulative thing. And what were you telling me about this device when we were talking earlier, this artificial intelligence device? Oh, the uh, the Satisys? Yeah, the Satisys, that was it. Well, I think it was originally developed by the gastroenterologists who were doing colonoscopies, and they would the device would assess the vital signs and deliver doses of hypnotic, sedative hypnotic, you know, mm -hmm. i.e. propofol, uh, based on the response, and uh, it would um, assess its algorithm and say, oh, the patient needs more or less propofol based on respiration, heart rate, and uh, oxygen saturation. But that was um, an attempt to, I think, eliminate a provider of anesthesia, which was also a fee that was generated. Mm -hmm. and, um, but it, it worked out to be unsafe because the, uh, the device wasn't, wasn't quite perfect enough, if you will. Still buggy. Mm -hmm. So uh, you do have to have all your ducks in a line if you're going to make somebody unconscious mm -hmm. and not have a, a, a breathing tube in. And that's what happens in colonoscopy, which I've, I've done my share. Um, and I've spent, you know, many, you know, years doing those kinds of cases, too. So um, it seems simple enough, but you're basically rendering the patient unconscious for the colonoscopy. Mm -hmm. And um, you do have to support the airway with an airway maneuver and supplemental oxygen and what have you. So it's, uh, it's more than just turning on a machine. Dr. Thomas Kelly here today. Thank you for coming in today after your long shift and uh, being here at uh, Widget Studios here doing Focus on Pocus podcast. It's great having you today. It's an honor, and uh, I thank you for all, everything you do to increase patient safety. Thanks a lot, Tom. Yeah, thank you. It was great being here in, uh, in beautiful Widget Studios. Yeah, and good to see you again. Indeed. Boy, indeed. I reflect back on our many... Uh, exploits in academia while we were teaching we re we had a great class i remember we got uh people were really fired up about it yeah our, our ultrasound workshops collectively were had the highest um response rates and the highest marks of of any workshops from the students in the university you know i'd pat myself on the back but i might hit the microphone so listen out there don't forget for more pocus style topics follow us on facebook at pocus cert academy and twitter at pocus academy thanks a lot tom have a good day Listening. Be sure to join us at Twitter at Pocus Academy and Facebook at Pocus Cert Academy. If you'd like to learn more about the Pocus community, visit us at pocusworld.org. Take a look at participating in our Pocus 25 research. Help contribute to the scientific development of the top 25 point of care ultrasounds. And we'll see you next time. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests and not those of Intellios. This podcast is for information purposes only.